for your presence here right now. And we invite you into our hearts, Lord. Holy Spirit, will you meet every need that's in this room right now? For those who need salvation, Lord, for those who need deliverance, for those who need healing, for those who need encouragement, whatever the need, Holy Spirit, we invite you here to minister to those needs. Give us ears to hear you today in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. You may be seated. So good morning. I feel like it's been forever that I have been up here to speak a message. It's been several weeks, so to say that I am excited would be a huge understatement. Some of you know that um, I've been speaking every week for over a year straight, and my wife told me, said, honey, you've got to take a break. I was like, I don't want to take a break. (laughs) So I did. I took a break, and this is my first day back, and we are beginning a study of the book of Mark today, so I am so excited to do that. And we're going to go through the entire book of Mark together, verse by verse. Now, I have no idea how long this is going to take, but I anticipate that it's going to take us several months to complete this journey together. But no matter how long it takes, we will follow the Holy Spirit's lead regardless. And we may need to pause this study from time to time to make room for him. There may be a specific subject he wants me to cover. There may be something going on in the world that he's asked me to address But Lord willing, we will always come back to finish this study of the book of Mark together. Now, preaching through the Bible one book at a time is one of my favorite things to do. Neither you nor I will have to question where we're going to be each week. So I want to encourage you to be reading and studying through the book of Mark on your own as we go through this study together. Now, the first four books in the New Testament are called the Gospels. The word gospel literally means good news. Each of these four books share the story about the same main character, Jesus. They all reveal the truth about his life, his death, and his resurrection. And each of these books was written for a different group of people by a different author who was trying to accomplish a different purpose. So let me give you a high-level overview of each of these four books before we dive into the Gospel of Mark specifically. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to do a nice, easy flyover at about 30,000 foot, so you can get kind of a survey of these books before we come in for a landing and we start going through the book of Mark together. I was an aviator, so I hope you don't mind the, (laughs) the expression there. All right, so the Gospel of Matthew was written by the Apostle Matthew. He was originally a despised tax collector who left that occupation um, to follow Jesus, right? He left the occupation and became one of his 12. And Matthew's audience for his gospel account were the Jews who were familiar with the law of Moses and the prophets. Matthew makes more references to the Old Testament than any other gospel. Matthew is also that connecting link between the Old Testament and the New Testament because it demonstrates how Jesus is the fulfillment of the prophecies that were written about the coming Messiah, the promised king who would be a descendant of David. Mark is the shortest of all the Gospels, and it was written by John Mark. John was his Jewish name, and Mark was his Latin surname. It's believed that John Mark had a very close relationship with the Apostle Peter, and therefore it was written based on the Apostle Peter's eyewitness account. Mark's audience is believed to have been primarily non-Jews, 
in and around the city of Rome. While Matthew's focus was on Jesus as a promised king, Mark's gospel focus is on Jesus as a suffering servant. Also, Mark's gospel is less about what Jesus said and more about what Jesus did. It's a book of action, and it reads the most like a story. It's also believed to have been the first gospel account ever written. In fact, over 90% of the verses that are in the book of Mark are quoted in the other gospels. Luke is the longest of the four gospels, and it's also the longest book in the New Testament. Luke was a doctor, and he was a man of great detail, which explains the thoroughness of his gospel account. Luke was a close friend and traveling companion of the Apostle Paul, and his focus throughout his gospel account was on Jesus as both fully God and fully man, the Savior for all who had compassion for all. John wrote his gospel account primarily to show that Jesus is God. His gospel has a very different look and feel than the other three gospels. How he begins his gospel is a great example. Matthew begins his gospel account with Abraham, and he traces all the genealogy down to Jesus. And Mark begins with Jesus' baptism. Luke begins with Jesus' birth. But John takes it all the way back to the very beginning. The very beginning, the first words in the Bible, in the beginning. John tells the story of God who loved the world so much that he himself became a man, just like you and I, in the person of Jesus. Then he lived among us, experiencing all the same temptations that you and I face, yet he never sinned. And then he died on the cross for us so that we could live with him for all eternity. John tells us how to have life and how to have it more abundantly. And it all starts and ends with a personal relationship with Jesus. There are four, these are the four gospel accounts in the Bible from a 30,000-foot view. And so now we're going to come in for a landing, and we're going to start to go through the book of Mark together. Who's ready? Yes. <laughs> All right. In the book of Mark, we see Jesus as a son, as a servant, and as a savior. All three of these representations will be common themes as we go through this book together. But the one that's going to stand out more than any other is Jesus as a servant. That's the one that's going to stand out. Because he did not come into the world as a conquering king, as most people expected. He came as a servant. In fact, in what may be the key verse in all of the Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 10, verse 45, Jesus said this, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, I wanted to make sure and emphasize this point right from the beginning because we are the most like Jesus when we serve like Jesus. We are the most like Jesus when we serve like Jesus. And as I said when I first introduced the Gospel of Mark, it's a book of action. It's believed that Mark wrote this Gospel based on the eyewitness account of Peter. Peter was a man of action. So it's no surprise that this gospel is all about action. Mark's focus is more on what Jesus did than on what Jesus said. Now, that's not to minimize what Jesus said at all. It's simply to point out that Mark's focus all throughout his gospel is on what Jesus did. And everything he did was done as a servant. And not just any ordinary servant of man. Jesus is God's servant. 
Because Mark saw that Jesus' true identity was made more evident by what he did than what he said. And one clue about this, one clue about Mark's focus on what Jesus did more than on what Jesus said is his use of the word immediately. Or depending upon your translation, it might be straight away. It could be shortly. But the Greek word behind this is eutheos. It's also pronounced euthus. And it's used more than 40 times in this book as Mark jumps from one action scene to another. This gospel is all about Jesus on the move. Mark is brief and he is blunt, which explains why his gospel is so short and sweet, because he gets right to the point. While Matthew begins his account with the genealogy of Jesus, Mark skips this because only a king needs a genealogy. A servant does not. A servant only needs references. A servant just needs to be able to get the job done. And we're going to see in our study that not only does Jesus have plenty of references, but he gets the job done done. Mark shows us more miracles than any of the other gospels because Jesus means what he says and he is who he says he is and that's best demonstrated by what he does. Jesus had all the power and authority of God and we see it in action from raising the dead, casting out demons, healing the sick and calming the storms. But even with all this power, Jesus came into this world as a servant because that was the pattern that he left for you and I to live today. That was the pattern. Our challenge as we study this book together is to learn from the life Jesus lived in service and sacrifice to others. That's our challenge. Because we're never more like Jesus than when we serve like Jesus. So turn with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1. We're going to look at the first eight verses in this together. You don't have a Bible. We've got Bibles here on the bookshelf. You can follow along on the screen or on your mobile device. But here we go. Verse 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, Mark does not waste any time at all getting right to the point. This verse could very well be the punchline for this entire book. If Mark were giving a title for this book, this would be it right here. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Just as the Old Testament began with, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, we're seeing here what's going on in this text. Mark is now saying the beginning of the gospel, which literally means good news, is that God is about to create something entirely new through his Son, Jesus. Jesus is the Greek form for the Hebrew name Joshua, which means the Lord is salvation. Christ is the Greek form for the Hebrew word Messiah, which means the anointed one. This was the, this was the title of the promised king who would be a descendant of David and would be God's coming kingdom, right? He would rule that coming kingdom. In the title, Son of God, that tells us that Jesus is more than just a man. He is the Lord God Almighty's only begotten Son. So when we put all this together from verse 1, we see that Mark is telling us that the good news is that the promised Messiah, the one everyone is waiting for, is now here in the person of Jesus. The very Son of God who would sacrifice his life on the cross so that everyone, and that includes you, who believes in him would have eternal life. That's verse 1. Isn't that awesome? 
I love how Mark starts this book. Man, he lays the smack down right from the beginning. I could keep going on verse 1. Verse 2, here's what he says. He says, as it is written in the prophets, behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now, I really like this translation because in this translation, you see that it's the prophets, plural. Some translations will say, according to the prophet Isaiah, right? It's actually two prophets. That's what Mark is doing. He's combining two quotes from two different prophets, and we're going to see this right here. Here they are. The first is Malachi. The prophet Malachi records the words of God here in Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, where it says, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. And then in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3, the prophet Isaiah records the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. You see, both of these references are simply indicating that there will be someone who is going to announce the coming Messiah and will prepare the way before him. These were prophecies given in the Old Testament hundreds of years before this would happen. Now, typically, whenever a king traveled somewhere, he would send a messenger ahead of him to prepare his way. And you see, God did the same thing here with his son. Mark is telling us that the Old Testament prophets, Malachi and Isaiah, both foretold that this would happen. And then in verse 4 of our text, Mark tells us exactly who this messenger is. Here's what he says, beginning in verse 4. John came baptizing in the wilderness and preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. Then all the land of Judea and those from Jerusalem went out to him and were all baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. So it's John the Baptist who is the messenger that will prepare the way for the Lord's coming. And how he does this is by preparing the hearts of people to receive the coming Messiah through the confession of their sins, which will then ultimately lead to their baptism. Now, a couple of notes on baptism. Baptism does not save you. Baptism does not save you. It's simply an act of obedience where it is an outward expression of the inward reality of what has already taken place in your heart. What's taken place in your heart? Repentance. True repentance will lead you to change your mind by turning away from your sins and turning to God. When we confess our sins, what we're doing is we're agreeing with God about his evaluation of our sins. And we recognize that God is a holy God, and our sin is what separates us from him. And without Jesus, that separation would be permanent. There is no way to bridge that gap of this separation between us and God without the blood of Jesus. Because it was his body broken for us, and his blood poured out on the cross that made a way for us to be redeemed and restored in fellowship with God. Now, you may remember the significance of broken and poured out from the Break Me Dangerous prayer message a couple of weeks ago. Because that's the good news. Jesus is the good news. And this is who John came to prepare the way for. Now, if we continue in our text in verse 6, Mark says, Now, John was clothed with camel's hair and with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, There comes one after me who is mightier than I, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to stoop down and loose. I indeed baptized you with water, 
but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Now, what Mark says about John's, what he's wearing and how he's dressed is significant because this is very similar to the Old Testament prophet Elijah. Now, if you look in 2 Kings chapter 1, verse 8, you'll see that Elijah was dressed nearly the same way. Now, listen to me. Just because a couple of dudes in the Bible are wearing the same clothes doesn't necessarily mean something, right? But if you study this a bit deeper and you take this detail along with others that you find in the Bible, what you'll see is that John is the prophet who comes in the spirit and power of Elijah that the Bible promises would come. Now, how do we know this? If you turn to Malachi chapter 4 and you look at verses 5 and 6, the prophet Malachi records what God said. And here's what God said. He said here in verse 5, Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. Now, it's the beginning of verse 6 that I've highlighted for you on the screen because that is the portion that I want you to mark in your mind. I want you to remember that because you're going to see it in just a few minutes. Now, this is a prophecy that Malachi recorded. The Jews all knew about this prophecy, and they were expecting this to happen. They just didn't realize that God would use John as that promised messenger who would prepare the way for the Lord. In fact, they totally missed John the Baptist as the fulfillment of this prophecy of Elijah, just like they missed Jesus as the promised Messiah. Now, in Luke chapter 1, verses 15 through 17, the angel Gabriel announces the fulfillment of this prophecy right here that you see on the screen. He announces that fulfillment to Zechariah. Zechariah was John the Baptist's father. Here's what the angel Gabriel said to him. He said, beginning in verse 15, For he... Now, he's talking about Zechariah's soon-to-be-born son, John the Baptist. That's who would be born to Zechariah and Elizabeth. For John will be great in the sight of the Lord and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. He will also be filled with the Holy Spirit, neither, uh, even from his mother's womb. And that is so good right there. Can you imagine having a child that as soon as it comes out of the womb is filled with the Holy Spirit? How cool is that? And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. Verse 17. And he will also go before him. Who's him? Jesus, right? Jesus, the Christ, the anointed one, the promised Messiah. He will also go before Jesus in the spirit and power of Elijah. Here it comes. To turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. Remember what I asked for you to mark in your mind? This is the fulfillment of that prophecy right here. And the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. John's entire ministry and focus was on making ready a people prepared for the Lord. This was his purpose in life. This is what the Lord raised him up to do. He is the one the Bible prophesied would come in the spirit and power of Elijah. In fact, it had been 400 years since the Lord had sent a prophet to his people. And then John comes onto the scene to prepare the way for the Lord. So how did John do this? How did he prepare the way for the Lord? He stirred up the hearts of the people to be ready for the Lord by encouraging them to confess their sins and as a sign of this repentance to be baptized. Why did he do this? Because a heart that is full of repentance is a heart that is ready to hear from the Lord and to follow the Lord. 
That's so good, I'm going to say it again. A heart that is full of repentance is a heart that is ready to hear from the Lord and to follow the Lord. Repentance is never a one-time event. It is a lifelong, continuous commitment. Jesus will come to this earth again. And the greatest question we must ask ourselves is this. Will I be ready? Will I be ready? I find it very interesting that as we start this new study in the book of Mark together, we are again encountering this same theme of being prepared. It was this very theme that the Lord impressed upon me when we went through our basic training message series together. That entire message series was all about our preparation. But sadly, as I reflect back on that series, I'm not sure I did the best job focusing on being prepared in the first message of that series specifically. I think that point may have been lost and overshadowed by what I said concerning the rapture. And for that, I want to humbly ask for your forgiveness. I do, because I don't ever want to create a stumbling block. I don't ever want to knowingly create division of any kind. I don't. So please accept my, my ask for your forgiveness over that. The main point is for us to be ready. So listen to me. It really doesn't matter what our view is regarding the timing of the rapture, whether it happens during or before or after the tribulation. It doesn't matter. The absolute critical thing for us is being ready whenever the Lord does come. That is the main thing. That is much more important, and that is what deserves our focus. So when we, again, as a church family, are facing this same theme of preparation in the book of Mark, I don't believe it's by accident. I believe the Lord is trying to tell this church, this body, hey, I want you to be prepared. That's what he's saying. So just as John came to prepare the way for the Lord, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord, how will you be ready and prepared when he returns? I truly believe that's the main question the Lord desires for all of us to answer today. And so I'm going to focus the rest of our time together this morning on how we make ourselves ready and prepared for the Lord. Now, first I'm going to summarize the motivations behind what makes us ready and prepared, and then we're going to unpack each of them together. So here are the three primary motivations that will help us to be ready when he comes back again. First, we will see the Lord God Almighty as he is. So we're going to see him. Second, there will be some level of suffering before he comes. So we're going to suffer. Number three, when he comes, we should all desire to be found faithful. Now, I'm going to illustrate each of these three motivations because how we respond biblically to each of these will show us how to be ready and prepared for the Lord. Now, the first motivation of being ready comes from the fact that we will see the Lord God Almighty as he is. We're going to see him. 1 John chapter 3, verses 2 through 3 says this. Dear friends, now we are children of God. Now, now means if you have placed your complete faith and trust in Jesus and what he did on the cross, now we are children of God. And what we will be has not yet been made known. But what we know that when Christ appears, meaning his second coming, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And what does that motivate us to do? The very next verse tells us, all who have this hope in him purify themselves just as he is pure. This hope is referring to the hope that we will one day be like him 
It will happen on the day he returns. In a moment, we will be like him. So this hope of being like him should motivate us to be like him right now. Right now, and that's the point. If we really want to be like him when he comes again, we will pursue being like him right now. Children of God will absolutely pursue being like him right now. And that means we will purify ourselves just as he is pure. I love how the Apostle Paul says something very similar to us, similar to what John said. He says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1. He says this, Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. You see, it's the fear of the Lord. That's what perfects our holiness. Now, the fear of the Lord is not something that makes you run away and cower from God. That's not what it is. The fear of the Lord actually makes you run to him if you get a firm understanding of what it is. So it doesn't make us run away. No, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, the Bible says. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil. It's reverence that results in obedience. When we fear the Lord, we love the Lord. We are in awe of the Lord, and we will do whatever we can to obey him so that we please him. You see that? That's the difference. You obey him to please him. You don't obey him to follow rules. You obey him to please him. Now, let me illustrate all this by telling you a very practical story. There were a bunch of teenagers one night. They were hanging out together. They were having a party. And one of them suggested that they go to a certain restaurant <clears throat> for a good time. Said, hey, let's go to this restaurant so we can have a good time. And then one of the teenagers named Sheila, this is what she said to her date. She said, hey, I'd rather you take me home because my parents don't approve of that place. And one of the girls overheard Sheila say this and she said to her boyfriend, or she overheard her say this to her boyfriend and she replied very sarcastically. She said, are you afraid your you will hurt your father? And Sheila said, no, I'm not afraid my father will hurt me. But I'm, actually, I read that wrong. Are you afraid your father will hurt you? That was the question. And Sheila said, I'm not afraid my father will hurt me, but I am afraid that I might hurt him. You see, she understood the principle behind the fear of the Lord. She understood that principle. A true child of God who has experienced the love of God through his incredible mercy and grace will have no desire to sin against that love. No, a true child of God will choose to purify themselves right now as he is pure. True children of God understand that one day they will see the Lord God Almighty as he is and that will motivate them to be ready and prepared for his return by becoming a holy, pure, loving, and sacrificial Christ-like person right now. That's the first motivation. The second one is this. The second motivation for being ready and prepared for the Lord's return is that there will be some level of suffering before he comes back again. Now, no one wants to hear about suffering. No one wants to hear that. I certainly don't want to hear that. I know that's not a feel-good message for today. But anyone who expects that living the Christian life will be without suffering is in for a real shock when they study their Bible. Because the Bible is full of saints who suffered. There are stories upon stories of believers who experienced incredible suffering. 
In Mark's gospel account, which is the book we're studying, he portrays Jesus as the suffering servant. So we cannot ever think that we are exempt from suffering. Paul says it this way in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12. He said, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Not maybe, will. In Acts chapter 14, verse 22, Paul was drug out of the city and he was drug out of the city and then he was stoned and left for dead. And right after that, this is what he said, it is through many tribulations that we must enter the kingdom of God. And Jesus said in John chapter 16, verse 33, that here on earth, you will have many trials and sorrows. Now here comes the hope. In case you're sitting there like, oh my gosh, this is doom and gloom. This is horrible. Here comes the hope. But take heart because I have overcome the world. That's where the hope is. Now the King James renders the words trials and sorrows as tribulation, which is another word for trouble or persecution. So what should this motivation of knowing we will experience some level of suffering before he returns, what should that lead us to do? It should lead us to keep on standing. Remember our study in Ephesians chapter 6? We went through the whole armor of God. What did Paul tell us? He said, stand. And when you've done all to stand, stand therefore. In other words, persevere, endure. That's what it should motivate us to do. Watch this. James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4 says this. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, when you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Now, I will admit, this is one of the most difficult passages to embrace. Consider it pure joy. Really? I don't know about you, but suffering through many trials just doesn't seem to drum up any sort of joy for me. However, I have learned that throughout my life that on the other side of a trial, right, on the other side of that is often great joy because there's greater intimacy with God because of having gone through that trial. There are many things that I would have never learned or experienced if I had not had those trials. And that's why we're to consider it pure joy. Because this testing of our faith, that is what produces perseverance. That's where you get perseverance. It's often what the Lord uses to mature us and cause us to grow closer to Him. So listen, you can have joy no matter your circumstances. You can. As a child of God, you know Jesus has already overcome everything. In fact, the word, is, the word of God says in Nehemiah that the joy of the Lord is our strength. The joy of the Lord is our strength. It all comes back to where is our focus? It shouldn't be on our circumstances. It should be squarely on Jesus. If we keep that focus on Him, we will have joy no matter what, even through our suffering. Now, Peter reminds us of the joy and hope we must have as well as why we must have. And I'm going to share this with you. It comes from 1 Peter chapter 1. And I got to tell you that as I was studying this, I was very tempted to cut it short. I was very tempted because it, it, there was a whole bunch of verses. I was like, oh man, that's a lot of Bible to throw at them. They're like, that's just too much reading. Just like the beginning when I read Psalm 33, many, some of you are probably like, when's he going to stop? That's so long. It's the word of God. 
If all I did was got, got up here every week and just read the Word of God and did nothing else, that would be enough. Because that's where all the power is. It ain't my voice. It's in His Word. So here we go. Watch this. This is good. I'm going to try to contain myself. I'm going to try. All praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is by His great mercy that we have been born again. Glory to God. Because God raised Jesus Christ from the dead. Oh, if there was no resurrection, there would be no hope, friend. Now we live with great expectation and we have a priceless inheritance, an inheritance that is kept in heaven for you, pure and undefiled, beyond the reach of change and decay. And through your faith, God is protecting you by his power until you receive this salvation, which is ready to be revealed on the last day for all to see. Hallelujah. And that's not all. So be truly glad. Be truly glad. Why? There is wonderful joy ahead, even though you must endure many trials for a little while. That right there reminded me of the text that said, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, right? Jesus went through all that suffering, right? Because he knew about the joy that was set before him. So there is wonderful joy ahead, even though you must endure many trials for a little while. These trials will show that your faith is genuine. It is being tested as fire tests and purifies gold. Though your faith is far more precious than mere gold. So when your faith remains strong through many trials, pause, remain. That word got my attention. Listen, remnant believers always remain. You hear me? I'm not talking about just remnant believers as if we in this room are the only remnant that there is in the body of Christ. No, there are remnant people and hopefully in every church, right? God preserves a remnant. He has done it in every generation. It's why we name the church the remnant because we want to be part of the remnant, amen? The actual body of Christ remnant that are God-fearing people who remain. John chapter 15 talks about abiding in Christ, living in him, remaining in him. That's what remnant believers do. They remain no matter what. It will bring you much praise and glory and honor on the day when Jesus Christ is revealed to the whole world. Isn't that good? That is the word of God right there. True children of God understand that there will be some level of suffering before Jesus comes back again. And this will motivate them to persevere or endure till he comes back again. Which is exactly what he said in Matthew chapter 24. Jesus said, those who endure till the end shall be saved. Because true children of God, they endure all the way through any suffering all the way till the end. That's the second motivation. Here's the third one. The third motivation for being ready and prepared for the Lord's return is that when he comes, we should all desire to be found faithful. So how can we be found faithful? First, it starts with the understanding that Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. So we've got to ask ourselves, is he truly my master? Can we answer that question? Is he truly my master? You know, some people are quick to say, Jesus is my savior, but they've not really made them his Lord. They're not really made him Lord. They've not. And there is not one ounce of biblical evidence to support such a view. 
He is Lord and Savior. I've said this before. Jesus is either Lord of all in your life or he's not Lord at all in your life. There can be no in-between. There can be no one else on the throne of your heart. If you claim to have Jesus as your Savior and then you can easily dismiss sin in your life as no big deal, then you may be in for a serious reality check when Jesus comes back again. The only people who will be ready for his return will be those who are seeking to bring every area of their life under the lordship of Jesus Christ every day. Did you hear me? The only people who will be ready for his return will be those who are seeking to bring every area of their life under the lordship of Jesus Christ every day. Now, this is a constant struggle to do this. But if you're not engaging in this struggle... You really need to examine yourself according to 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5 to see if you really are even in the faith at all. Those who are ready for Jesus to return have made him their master by following him as Lord. So how else can we be found faithful? Not only must Jesus be our master, we must be his servants. Servants live to obey their master. Now, being a servant of Jesus is first a mindset, then it's a ministry, okay? For example, my ministry is to be a pastor. That's my ministry. But I'm also a business professional in the corporate world. That is how I make my living. That is how I'm able to provide for my family. So while my role in ministry is only fulfilled a certain number of hours each week, I am a servant of Jesus Christ 24 hours a day, seven days a week. At least that should be my mindset. So regardless of where I am or what I'm doing, I should be a servant of the Lord Jesus all the time. I should be obedient to his will and I should be bringing glory to his name always and in everything. That is the mindset. It's not like I'm over here and I'm so-and-so and I have this hat on and I play this part. And then I'm over here and I'm someone totally different. I put a different hat on and I'm somebody totally different. No, the mindset is we are servants of the Lord Jesus Christ 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Now, because the Lord has given every believer at least one spiritual gift, we should be seeking out how to use these gifts for his glory in the body of Christ. In this house. If you call this church home, you should be looking to how can you use your gifts for his glory. Every one of us has a function to perform in the body of Christ, which means we are all essential for the church to flourish and grow. All of us. That's how God designed his body, to be dependent upon one another. We are interdependent. So if you're not serving in some capacity or seeking a place to serve, you are more than likely living for just yourself. Servants seek to serve their master. And they do it to bring glory to his name. So to be found faithful when he returns, Jesus must be our master. We must be his servants and we must be living in expectation of his return. If you are expecting the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords to show up in your home, how should your life look? Think about that. Would you have been okay if he would have come back during whatever you had going on this past weekend? Are there things in your life that you need to get rid of? Books, magazines, videos, addictions, things that just don't have really any redeeming value? 
What if the Lord showed up at your door while you're watching one of your TV shows? Would you be horrified? Or could you easily invite him to come in and sit down and watch it with you? Tough question. We shouldn't have to yell while he's knocking on the door, just a minute, while we scramble around and we go get all the things that we're embarrassed about and shove them in the closet. No, we need to be ready for him at all times. We should all want to hear him say, well done, my good and faithful servant. When we study the parable of the talents that Jesus taught, this is what the master said to his faithful servants. Well done, my good and faithful servant. He didn't say, well done, my good and accomplished servant, as if all the things we accomplish in our lives are what matters. He didn't say, well done, my good and prosperous servant, as if all the money and stuff that we accumulate in our lives matter. He didn't say, well done, my good and famous servant, as if all the accolades and attention we receive in our lives matter. No, he said, well done, my good and faithful servant. Meaning, how are we using what God has given us for his glory? Are we being good stewards of what God has entrusted us with? So to be found faithful when he returns, we need to make sure we have made him our master, that we are actively serving him, using what he's given for his glory, and we should be living with great expectation that he is coming again soon. So today, we began our study in the book of Mark. In this book, we see Jesus as a son, as a servant, and as a savior. All three of these representations will be common themes as we go through this book together. But the one that's going to stand out among all the others is Jesus as a servant. He came as a suffering servant, not as a conquering king. Our challenge from this book is to learn from the life that Jesus lived in service and sacrifice to others because we are the most like Jesus when we serve like Jesus. John the Baptist was the messenger that the prophets Malachi and Isaiah said would come to prepare the way for the Lord, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. John accomplished his mission. He stirred up the hearts of the people to be ready for the Lord by encouraging them to confess their sins and as a sign of this repentance, to be baptized. Because a heart that is full of repentance is a heart that is ready to hear from the Lord and to follow the Lord. Repentance is never a one-time event. It is a lifelong, continuous commitment. Jesus will come to this earth again. And the question is, will you be ready? Now, we talked about three motivations that will help us be ready and what specifically they will motivate us to do. First, we will see the Lord God Almighty as he is. And that should motivate us to pursue being like him right now. There will be some level of suffering before he comes. And that should motivate us to persevere till he comes. And when he comes, we should all desire to be found faithful. And that should motivate us to ensure we have the right perspective. Jesus is our master. We are his servants. And we must be living in expectation of his return. Now, to simplify everything you've heard today, to simplify the entire message down to three words on how to be prepared for his return, is that it's all about our pursuit our perseverance, and our perspective. Are we pursuing him by purifying ourselves just as he is pure? Are we persevering through whatever's going on in our lives right now? And do we have the right perspective on who he is, who we are, and what we should be doing 
until his return. It's all about our pursuit, our perseverance, and our perspective. Jesus will come again. Will you be ready? Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for this word. Thank you, Lord, that your word is true. You've given us all the answers that we need. I pray, Jesus, that you would encourage us to be faithful always in everything. And that as we represent you, we do it lovingly, peacefully, and in a way that would bring you glory in every sphere of our life. Not just where we put on a fake veneer and we walk out being someone that we're really not. Lord, help us to be true, genuine, faithful followers of Christ. I love you, Lord, and I thank you so much for this church. I thank you for this body and what you have done. Look what you have done. It is amazing, and we give you glory for it. I pray right now, Jesus, if there's someone here that needs deliverance of any kind, deliverance from evil, deliverance from an addiction, deliverance from sin, whatever it is, I pray, Lord God, that you would break that hold today in Jesus' name. If there's others that are here that need healing, Lord God, I pray that you would heal and that you restore and that you'd be glorified. Whatever the need, Lord, take care of it. Thank you so much for this message. Thank you so much for these people. We just pray for your blessing in Jesus' mighty name, amen. If you're here and you need prayer of any kind, delivered from whatever that it is, or just to talk, I'm here for you. Love you guys. God bless you. We'll see you next week.